kind of gone international. We have uh, a guest from London and one from LA today, uh, Peter Worrell and Adam Krantz. Uh, they are Frontium Technology and they have a product called Media Seal. So they're part of the security world, which is cool. So if you see them, say hi to them because they're from out of town and they don't know us and they're new. So it would be great if you said hello to them. Uh, I'd like to thank Chris Peterson for helping me organize this. I'd like to thank our panelists and Dolby Theater for hosting. It's so great to have it in this great space. Um, and I'd like to thank Larry Shear, who came at the last minute to help us out. And um, he's from State and Broadway. He does a lot of work with the Post New York Alliance in advocating for the tax credit. He is one of the people who started with us getting that tax credit going. So he's a really important person to us. Um, and I'm going to hand it over to Larry. And uh, it's on. And and I'm going to say thank you to Andrea Bloom for putting this together as well. And also say it's nice to hear somebody say I'm a really important person. Um, I'm going to just give you kind of a quick sequence. First, what I'm going to do is introduce our guest, uh, our, our panel rather. I'm going to give their bios. It is an extraordinarily impressive panel that we have here. We're very lucky to have them here. Then what we'll do is uh, we will. I'll give a brief overview, and then we'll go to some, uh, some slides, uh, but with the intention really to have the panel discuss the issues of security, bring out the sophistication that they have, and at the end of the discussion, um, if we have some time left over, and I think we will, you guys can ask some questions. I'm sure uh, you'll have really pointed specific questions about the business that will be of interest to you. So with that, why don't I do the introductions. First, I'm going to introduce Tim Lunderman. He is the Principal Consult, Federal Security at Worldwide Security. And his resume is quite impressive. Joined WWT in 2016 after a varied career that included both military and commercial service. His military experience included flying F-15s and F-16s, which is unusual. I don't have many people I meet with that experience. Being deployed to the Iraq, uh, to Iraq AOR six times, working with the National Reconnaissance Office, uh, U.S. Cybercom, Fort Meade, and currently as the ANG assistant to the CIO Air Force as part of the New Hampshire National Guard. His civilian career includes working for EI DuPont, Continental uh, Data Systems, Tibrin, LMCO, and United Airlines. He also assists federal teams, specifically the U.S. Navy, USN, and Defense Information Systems Agency, DISA, on technology as it relates to security within the networks and processes. Thank you, Tim, for being here with us. Next is Peter Marshall, the Managing Director of DeWitt Stern Risk View. Peter specializes in insurance programs and risk management for film and television productions, as well as electronic games. He coordinates DeWitt Stern's national practice in these media in these media, which ensures and risk manages 60 to 80 firms and over 500 hours of television each year. Before joining DeWitt Stern in 2005, Peter produced and oversaw as a studio executive numerous feature films and television shows. During his many years of experience in the film industry, he was the senior vice president of film production at Lionsgate, head of television production at Trimark Pictures, and served as an executive at Warner Brothers as well as at several pr 
prominent independence. He started his career in the New York and LORT a theater worlds. Peter holds degrees from Yale University and the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, and an MFA from the Yale School of Drama. He's a licensed property and casualty broker in New York, and California, Georgia, Florida, and Louisiana. Thank you for being here, Peter. Next is Rob DeMartin. He's the COO and president of Technicolor Postworks New York Facilities View. With over 25 years of experience in managing rapid growth companies, Rob has held various management and ownership positions in industries including television and film production, post-production, real estate management, medical imaging, and practice management and garment manufacturing. More recently, while holding CFO and COO titles, Rob has overseen daily operations with emphasis on operations management, IT systems design, financial modeling, process improvement, and acquisition integration. Rob is currently president and COO, as I had already said, of Technicolor Postworks New York. Thank you for being here, Rob. This has, I think, uh, as, as I described in my prelude, this is a very impressive group on our panel. So thank you all. Um, what I will do now is quickly give you a quick overview. As uh, Andrea had said, uh, my firm uh, does the advocacy and education for Post New York Alliance in regards to the film and television tax incentive program. We represent a number of different film and television stakeholders. So we have a vested interest in ensuring that content is created here in New York State. And I think all of you guys here, I assume, are very, uh, very much uh, hopeful and incentivized to, uh, to advocate in support of this tax incentive. That said, uh, over the years, uh, with the voracious appetite that the that the uh, public has uh, for original content. We have seen an explosion of, of original content creation. Uh, New York has been a sighting for many of the productions and post-production works that have occurred. Uh, we know that through the various ways in which content is now distributed, the different platforms, uh, that the value of content has just uh, exponentially increased over the years. And so with that in mind, there is a need to be protective of that content. And I'm just going to start with this particular slide, and then we're going to, oh, I, I don't think I can, unless I hit this. There we go. I will tell you, I know this seems kind of jokey, but when my assistant and I were, um, were uh, putting together PowerPoint, she was humming this song, and it suddenly occurred to me how apropos anything goes, and that's exactly what we want to prevent. Uh, and so that, I think, to a large degree is the core of what this conversation is going to center around, is how to protect your content, what uh, best practices you might want to develop, and uh, what lessons we can learn from, um, unfortunately, theft that has already occurred. And with that, why don't we do the following? Starting with Rob, going to Tim, going to Peter, would you like to do a little a brief intro over a brief introduction, and then we'll we'll head to the the uh, to the slides. Jen, can you hear me without the mic, or do I need the mic? Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> so uh, I'm Rob. I work at Tendercolor Postworks down on Leroy Street in the city. Uh, our company does a, a couple of things. So we touch various aspects with content security. Uh, we do. Uh, picture and sound finishing for studios, both episodic and theatrical. 
So obviously that's a, an audience that's very focused on, on a high degree of content security. We uh, also do finishing sound and picture for cable broadcasters and indie films that are somewhat less concerned about content security. Uh, and we run uh, about 125 cutting rooms, uh, almost like a WeWorks model. So we provide cutting room space, bandwidth, office space, so productions can come live under our roof and uh, live throughout the offline stage of, of editorial and the creative. So that's a situation where uh, clients either are terribly interested or terribly uh, disincented to live under strict content security rules. So content security is something that we deal with uh, on a daily basis, uh, hopefully coach our clients on. We spend a lot of time in our recruiting and onboarding processes with content security training, uh, invest as much as possible with uh, infrastructure and, and process improvement around content security. Uh, you know, I should be focused a little more on the, on the digital side, but for us, uh, content security, be it cyber or physical, uh, you know, very much a, a blurred line. But uh, happy to be here and, and uh, you know, definitely uh, very much part of my life to talk about Security. Thank you, Rob. Tim? Hi. Uh, yeah. First, I'd like to start by saying um, thank you. Um, thank you for having me um, here. It's quite an honor to be here. Um, very humbling to be on a panel with uh, these two gentlemen, for sure. It definitely feel like the one that doesn't belong, uh, without a doubt. But thanks for what you do, too, right? Thanks for making the economy great. Thanks for how getting the word out um, at the end of the day and, and being the creative juices behind this great country that we live in. You know, you hear my background, I'm varied background. Some say I have ADD, but I've been on this cybersecurity kick since uh, 20, 2006. And it's just gonna be a quick story there, um, how I got there. I was in Iraq, I'm looking down on my F-16. I um, see three vehicles coming out of Sadr City, if you ever watch um, uh, a, long way, a Long Road Home, National Geographic, that's the same type of scenario that we were in. I was meant to protect the third, those three vehicles there that were coming on a supply route. I'm 11,000 feet in F-16, look at through a targeting pod. The targeting pod has infrared um, capability. It just looks through that and it's only get shades of green, if you will, where if it's really hot, it'll be white. If it's not hot, it'll be dark, like black. And the only, I was supposed to be looking for IEDs in the ground. And as I was looking for the IEDs in the ground, the only way that you would see that in the road is if someone dug up the IED very shortly beforehand, turned, it, turned the dirt over, which would then change the temperature on the ground, stick the IED in, then put it back over and go across. So my job at 11,000 feet, fairly safe, is to protect the men and women on the ground. What happened that day was on the third vehicle of that convoy blew up. And I'm looking at that going, okay, I got great technology flying a $40 million jet with the best that the US can offer. And there's somebody's mind put an IED in the ground. The next day I went over to all those casualties that flew back. They flew into where my base was. I went to go see that person who was in that convoy. He lost three of his, uh, his uh, soldiers uh, in that incident and he had his arms stuck in a cast that was straight out because it was shattered in pieces. And I said, hey, I was upstairs, I was trying to help you out. And he looked at me and he goes, well, you didn't help me out. You didn't see that IED in the ground, so just go away. And I mean, that sat for me for a long time. And what the, the lesson learned of that story is, is that there are people out there who have ideologies that don't like us, right? Don't like the United States, don't like what we stand for. There are technologies and dollars that we put huge amounts of money into, and, and it's not cybersecurity. And my job ever since that day 
was to kind of get in the hearts and minds of those people before they actually come forward and do harm to us. And we could talk about the Sony hack um, and, and other things that affect your industry. But clearly, that's where I'm at. If there's one thing that you take away from my comments tonight on how to get more secure in cyber, and, and we'd love to hear from what it is, it's relationships. It's personal, one-on-one -on -one relationships that deal with that. We'll get more into that as the conversation goes on. Peter? You put me after that? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I don't have anything. It's like the guy who spoke after I have a dream. Right. Um, so I work for a firm called DeWitt Stern. It's been around for about 120 years, and it's a part of a larger company now called Risk Strategies. We're known for uh, protecting and ensuring and risk managing the arts, everything from dance and orchestras to, in my little corner of the Star Trek universe, motion pictures, TV, and new media. And we insure 60 to 80 films a year and about 500 hours of television and about a third of the commercials you see, both on the experiential risk side, the production, and also the IP side, E&O. And increasingly, since I would say 2007 or 8, um, the cyber side. And uh, we provide insurance uh, for post houses around the world, uh, which are major targets of uh, professional hackers. Uh, they're often the uh, safest and easiest way to steal content. Uh, so we design programs to identify those houses and identify studios and production companies for their costs, their first out-of-pocket costs, uh, when a hack happens or a destructive event happens or just a breach, an accidental breach happens, and also uh, if you're sued. So that's the other side of how insurance responds. Um, you know, I think our team has uh, grown with the variety of threats that have uh, come up. And, you know, I appreciate what you say about our industry because um, it's maligned a lot, and uh, I like to remind people who malign it that um, it's the last product we make in this country that outsells every other country's product of the same kind every time. I love French cinema, but when an American movie opens in Paris, they see the American movie. And, uh, you know, it's a cottage industry. We all know it, that uh, the big, big conglomerates rely on mom and pop shops. They rely on smaller vendors, and they're the most vulnerable, and so they are the most sought now. And so my team, and one member of our team is here, um, is dedicated to helping that group. That's uh, our mission. Thank you. And there is, a, uh, there is a, a, an enormous drive in creating content, and as, as Peter was saying, whether it's Spanish language or English language or French language or what have you, it's being made here, and it's being shipped overseas. And what we thought we would do, though, to talk about uh, to start the discussion going is get a sense of who these hackers are, what, why you might be targeted, and what they are looking for. Um, before, this, before we started, Hannah was discussing this very issue, and I would tell you it was, it was fairly frightening. But what we thought we might do is start with the Larson Studio case. I know, I suspect everybody's familiar with the Sony uh, hack and with the Lawson Studio hack and maybe the PlayStation hack. Let's start with the Lawson Studio hack because it seems to be a, a wonderful case study on what happened and what not to do. And I'll throw that to Peter. Did you want to, Tim? Did you want to start with that one, Peter? 
I would step back just one step before jumping into the poor Larson couple. Um, the, 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 yeah, I think those are the right questions. Who, why, and what? And I, I'm going to quote a guy I got to know in the last few years named Jim Kelly. He's Ray Kelly's son. Uh, he uh, runs global cybersecurity for this little bank called J.P. Morgan Chase. And he, I'm quoting him, he said, so there's three flavors out there if you want to be reductive about it but accurate. Lions and tigers and bears. And I'll take them backward. The bears are seeking money. It's commerce driven. Um, and you'll often see ransomware and denial of service uh, attacks. And traditionally that's come out of Ukraine, which is code for Russia. Uh, and they're highly trained hackers. They often have gone to the universities there and are then forced into service. Um, that has you know, been pretty evident on a number of really publicized uh, hacks. Whether it's Ukraine or Russia, that commerce-driven, get the stuff, sell it, or hold it for ransom. The tigers basically trade in secrets, and they use spyware, and they lurk in your system, and they lurk to find uh, maybe uh, the way you do business so that they can duplicate it, or so that when they try to come by you, they know exactly what they're buying. It's often used in, in M&A, um, and it uh, has mostly, I think you, you can speak to this, come out of Asia, uh, specifically China. And the third, which really relates to the Sony hack, in my opinion, um, the lions are more politically driven or ideologically driven sometimes, and they are takedown attempts, and uh, they have emanated traditionally from Iran and North Korea, um, a bit in Syria, because of uh, people who have migrated there. Um, and those are destructive attacks. Uh, so when we look at any one case and we say, well, who is it? What, you know, that, it is important, I think, to uh, be able to figure out who is coming after you and, and who is profiling you. Because their motivation is going to give you a lot of information about what they're using and what their end game is going to be. So, you know, a lot of folks resist getting into working with people like the guys on my right because why, why do I need to know? Why? Yeah, so... So the great rundown, and I guess I, how do you end up? But oh my, right? Lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right? Um, but but we we classify things a little bit different in the federal government, but um, and also within my company, and but really aligned to each one of those three cases um, that are there. We'll call them tier one actors. Tier one actors are nation state actors that have lots of money and lots of capability. And so when you look at what's out there, you look at the capability and intent, right? Clearly have the capability, not so much the intent, right? So would a country, call it first world country that is out there that has a lot of dollars, go do this maliciously against the United States or even your industry? Yes or no? Probably not. The second tier actors are going to be those ones that have um, the capability and a little bit of intent, not the high end stuff. And when I say tier one actor, I mean, it's the person who comes in and comes out and you never knew they were there. That's like the tier one actor. The tier two actor is someone with the capability and intent, but not as great capability. Or in, uh, but clearly has the intent to do it. These are the people who are going to tra trade secrets, steal that. And the, the analogy that I use is if you had a house, they would come in there, you would see that there'd be spray painting on the walls. It was pretty obvious that they came through the door. <laughs> There's evidence left behind that they were there. 
And then you could pull that information back out as they're pulling that back out. But, you know, you, you didn't, I wasn't able to stop them, right, to be, for enable to come into that. And the third capability is, is um, more of no capability, but clearly the intent, right? These are anonymous. These are the people that are just trying to create, like, um, whether it be organized crime, whether it be just teenagers that really want to get views of post-production material to put it on the web ahead of time to get famous. You know, that's... Those are the people that are there. Now, just because they don't have the capability, clearly have they, you could go buy that capability off the internet, right? <laughs> you don't have to be a hacker to do this. For less than $30, I could show you exactly how you can take everything in my life, right, and understand where that is, put it out on the internet, including my bank accounts, right? So, and, and so I, don't, I don't necessarily, I, I'm go not going to disagree with my colleague here, but I, when, when you're dealing with a cyber incident, I don't necessarily, who, Attribution is a very, very, very difficult thing. Um, and we could talk a little bit about the technology behind the attribution. So I don't really care who, but we need to know, understand what was taken and how to stop the bleeding, right? That's triaging it there. So um, clearly a good idea in the background to understand the overall intent long term. But when it happens to you, the first question always, hey, who did this? Well, that's the wrong question to ask. It's like, how do we stop it from happening so that we can then move on later? And, and I'm just going to jump in quickly because when we sit around at the Post-New York Alliance and we're discussing the various issues that impact the post-production world, um, the piece on security is starting to rise higher and higher in the level of conversation. And there is a greater sensitivity. And maybe, Rob, you might want to speak to why. Why post-production? Why might be? Why is that a vulnerable community at this point? Well, you know, I think our content is, is uh, compelling. Uh, and frankly, I'm not sure that when we're getting scanned, which our network is scanned continually, there's never a moment in any day where someone's not trying to force scan our public-facing IPs. We, we see them scanning from all over the world. It's not geographically uh, focused in Ukraine. It's not, it could be Ohio, it could be Connecticut, it could be China, it could be Russia, assuming we're, we can identify the IP that's coming from. Uh, I think it's random hobbyists just looking for something to do and, and out there poking around and looking for open servers or unpatched devices. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of folks out here that are creating valuable content and people would love to see Mary Poppins in, in its current cut right now. So uh, I don't know that when they're scanning my IPs, they're looking for uh, the movies that are being finished or the shows that are being finished. But maybe, but but maybe one of you can speak to the issue of, of what these types of hackers are targeting. So this is a commodity that's becoming more and more valuable. There are, I'm sure, many other commodities that are of great value as well. Is there a knowledge base that has been acquired by the hackers, whether it's in China or the Ukraine or other places, where the film industry in particular is targeted? Definitely. You know, and there's a methodology now for trying to hack a lot of the cameras and hard drives that are being used um, on sets today. And uh, the information flow before it even gets to an editor for an assembly. Uh, you have cases of shows that are being assembled as they're being shot by a ghost editor and uploaded to a pirate locker. So there, there is a community that's looking at how to do this. Um, bringing it to the Larson hack, um, you know, those guys got these text messages on a Friday night, which is rather typical. 
at the end of a week when you're at your most vulnerable. And they were pretty hairy. They were upsetting, but they, they blew them off and they didn't pay attention to them. And uh, you guys probably all know the story. As it played out over the weekend, um, they decided to start talking to Dark Overlord. And they didn't really talk to the FBI for a couple of days who could have told them that this is a group that had been trolling a number of different companies, including Gorilla Glue and a hospital. Uh, you know, they're very good at getting into systems. It, they just happened to get into a post-production studio and looked around and said, ooh, orange is the new black. Well, that's valuable. They, they weren't specifically looking for that, but if they had known that this was a very practiced extortionist group, they might have behaved differently. What they did was 19 transactions of giving them Bitcoin. Who here thinks that's a good idea? It just, it was, it didn't play out well. And uh, they, you know, finally realized uh, that the hackers were not honest. Hmm. <laughs> And weren't going to do what they said they were going to do. So you know, they they were really clever. The the Dark Overlord had pinged a group of journalists to see if they had squealed. He said, "Hey, is there a story? You know, you might want to run the story. Talk to them about something that's happened." And they were looking for a story being planted to punish them about it. They didn't. They kept they kept their mouths shut. They kept paying a little bit, but then they you know went to the FBI and ultimately. Dark Overlord turned to Netflix, which basically told them to pound sand. And that's when they released Orange is the New Black, and they sort of kind of apologized to Larson, uh, which was rather hilarious, saying, well, it's really because you talked to the FBI. We, we, we really did you know, keep our word. Yeah. Um, and you know, the poor fellow that was uh, the director of digital systems, who has the unfortunate name of Chris Unthank. I don't know if we know it. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> Poor guy. Uh, I mean, he really didn't get much help because it was after it was late, and that was the real one of the great lessons of of that event. I think was the waiting period and not knowing who to call. If you don't have a SWAT team, and that's not that hard to assemble. I mean, I would have to say, just a pitch for insurance: buy a good insurance product, and that company will show you the four numbers that you should have on speed dial, and you call these folks in. And you manage the situation a lot better. I mean, you know, they found out blackmailers can't be trusted. Uh, reputations are tough to restore. I think you can speak to how they have restored their, and and that you have to update and reconfigure often. You know, it's not okay to say, oh well, nobody, we don't use Windows Seven, then we're good. Whatever your weakest link is is what they'll find. I think that's yeah. I, and I'd like Tim to speak to. Boston as well, but I'd like him to think through if you would incorporate in your, an your, your answer, and then Rob on the reputational piece, um, that there are different types of hackers, right? There are those folks who are private enterprise seeking commodities that they can sell on the market. But then there are national co governments that are behind these folks uh, with different motives or maybe similar motives. Maybe if you can incorporate how that plays out as well. Uh, yeah, clearly. I mean, so in if we say IP port scan, I mean, does everybody understand that by hands? You know, yeah, that's like I, I use a house, right? And, and that's a person just jiggling the windows, see which windows open, right, so that they could get into the house. Um, when it comes to to hacking, I think um, to get the tier one actors and even maybe a little bit of subset of the tier two, right? You, you kind of got to raise to the bar to where 
you become relevant to them, right? Meaning that, are you relevant to North Korea? Are you relevant to China? Are you relevant to Syria? Are you relevant to things of that nature? Like, so for instance, I don't even know if this is being done, but if there is a uh, Assad movie that was going to come out and the Syrian government didn't like what was going to happen, that could make you a target at the end of the day, right? That's just the way the world bounces today. But the interesting part of this is that when you look at these hacks, they're not sophisticated, right? It, it is basic blocking and tackling of sending a phishing email nine times out of ten. That's how the Sony hack happened, which drops something into your into that, and then it creates a beacon out, and then you could get command and control into your network, and you could create a network that you think is 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 flat. Like so, if I'm on a network, when I say a network that's flat, that means I could touch everything in my company that's out there. It's probably not what you want to do. And what my company does is kind of talk you through the process of, hey, what's the most important key terrain that you have, right? And, and it sounds to me that maybe it's the actual film or the, the storyline or whatever is that's there. And let's isolate that off of the network right now and maybe even create a different network. And it's called segmentation. So segment that off. And then keep all the accounting people, keep your email systems and other things outside of that. Because, and I'm getting back to your question, because like I said before, you can go to the internet and buy a hack. And you don't need a sophisticated hack to make a bad day. It is very straightforward um, to go ahead and do that. So, and and, and Rob, there is a um, un an understanding that um, when somebody provides you with digital content that you're working on, uh, that is a responsibility not just to service that content, but also to protect that content. And maybe you could speak to that issue and the reputational harm that could occur by not protecting it. Absolutely. I, I think uh, a, a facility like ours, we're probably uh, one of a few in the city that are of scale enough to really have significant investment in content security. There's certainly a large group of facilities that are smaller uh, and maybe focus more on an independent client or a nonfiction client where content security is not a key critical element, but my broadcasting better? Uh, uh, we, there, I don't really know how many facilities in New York have been through MPA audit or HBO audit or Fox audit or, or, or whatnot, but we go through that on a pretty regular basis. So I think the implication is our facility, as well as a handful of others, are good custodians of our clients IP right um, and, and if I was a if I was a studio and I entrusted my content to you and you started to develop a reputation for maybe not protecting it as well as it should be protected I think twice about sending my content to you absolutely. I know you spoke about Lawson before with the your panel fellow panelists and how their reputation has rebounded why don't you speak to that and we can you know delve a little deeper after this. Yeah, you know, some of our networks, our production network is pretty hardened. Not impenetrable, not flawless. We assume that there's vulnerabilities across the board. Uh, but um, uh, I think a lot of the, the systems that you put in place are defeatable. Uh, for instance, AVIDs. If, if people are in cutting rooms and they're on a Mac, and even if you're on an isolated VLAN that has, is heavily restricted to the internet or only very few allowances and exceptions, defeating that system is as easy as turning on your Wi-Fi. 
So there, there's a ton of, no matter how good your firewall is, mm -hmm. the human can very easily defeat a lot of the investments and a lot of the practices we have in place. So we put a ton of energy into the management, the training. And not to say that we want to manage with a stick or by scaring, but I believe, I, I'm surprised that Larson has survived this event. We take the position that should we go through a Larson-style loss, it's almost lock the door and go home and call it quits. It, it really can be a, a career-ending breach. We consider it that important. So, uh, you know, Larson, very happy to hear that their clients and the audience has been very forgiving and supportive. Uh, in fact, we had an auditor in a couple weeks ago, and, and he's the one that mentioned, yeah, well, LA really has uh, kind of uh, forgiven the sins and moved on, and Larson's fully up to speed and, and doing quite well. But from our perspective, uh, it's a very, very serious thing, and uh, we don't take it lightly, and we don't assume that we would survive a breach like that. Right, and, and reputation over time can be tarnished to a point where you may not bounce back like a Larson. So let me throw this to Peter then. Are the studios the owners of the content? Are those folks creating standards that they're telling their third-party vendors you have, to, you have to match or you have to meet? They are. Uh, they've started to become more diligent and uh, demanding. Um, I think there's a little bit uh, more sensitivity to the uh, level of uh, vendor uh, now from the studios, uh, meaning what kind of systems, who do they have watching it. They are now starting to pay attention to who is in the IT and security departments. Um, they're requiring insurance levels of cyber insurance so that um, a firm isn't caught uh, you know, without the resources to uh, bring in a good forensic auditor, to bring in good counsel. Um, so yeah, they, they are. They're, they're starting to. Would you say that there's a, a uniformity of standards that are developing, or it, it, do each studios kind of have distinct standards that they're requiring of their vendors? Um, well, they, it's not on purpose, but they are uh, uh, becoming more uniform uh, because the same things are uh, required, but I don't think there's any conversation necessarily between them uh, too much, not the studios that we work with. Um, you know, we've seen, uh, I, I, we've all seen the enormous emergence of, of Netflix, and, and they outsource almost everything uh, at times, and they have different protocols. So it, it, it's it's evened out only because the, the requirements are, are And just for, is there communication going on between the studios on how to harden their? Not as much as I'd like to see, okay. uh, but well. uh, there's some. You know, I think uh, one of the things that's occurred in the past couple of years is uh, they're sharing information about, and I know you, you don't think it's important, but they're sharing information about who's trying to get it um, because they want to see a pattern in what the attacks are. And uh, definitely, you know, the groups that object to the content as opposed to the groups that just want to sell it do different things. They may try to bribe an individual. I was going to ask Tim a different question, but I'm not. I want to let him respond to because I, I the, the yeah, whether I, it's important. I, I, or not. I don't misinterpret my my comment about who did it, right? Because when you're attacked, the last thing you 
really need to think about is who did it, right? It's more of how do you respond to that? So it's absolutely important to know who does it in the long run, but it's extremely hard to uh, figure that out. So I apologize if I misinterpreted. I agree with you. Yeah, it, yeah. it is. It's almost impossible at times. Yeah, uh, yeah. Unless they tell you and you can really. Yeah, that's right. Because if you know who's doing it. So, for example, let's talk about a Ukraine hack, right? For example, right? So a Ukrainian out there has it in to want to know what the next version of House of Cards is going to come out. And I apologize if the member that does the House of Cards is in the audience. Maybe a poor example, but I don't make movies. So I, I, whatever, I couldn't use myself. Anyway, so the next version that comes out. Ukrainian is not going to jump into your network from a Ukrainian server, right? They're going to jump from there to Germany, to England, to South America, to to Cleveland, to California, and then maybe the last jump is going to be into New Jersey. So when you hear, you see the IPs that come in, it looks like a normal traffic that comes inbound to be the command and control part of that, right? So you have to understand what are they going after. Like this seems like an unusual request to be happen that you either want to get full access um, at the admin level to take all the data out. And there's certain things that you can set up architecturally in your network to, to do that. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the response to that. So as it relates to this slide here, um, this, this is um, the art of, um, I think, what cybersecurity is all about, right? We've talked about this, all three of us already, and it's people, processes, and technology. And you can't do one without the other. And if any one of these three fail, it absolutely is going to break down. You could have the best technology that you have set up on your network, but if you click, if the person <laughs> clicks the Wi-Fi to make it more convenient because they want to go check to make sure their kids are okay on your Gmail, and then that opens up a vulnerability, that's a people issue, right? Um, if you make, if a security professional, and we see this in, and we work really hard in my company not to do this now, but if you see a security professional make it so hardened which is an interesting debate that we could get into restrictions and, and conformity and, and all that stuff. If you make it so difficult to be able to be conformed, you're just going to work around it. I mean, this is human nature, right? And especially with the technology that we're getting in our hands. So that's the processes part of that, right? And so it has to be ingrained to understand what those capabilities are. I mean, the technology's out there, and, and there are people out there, including my company, that can clearly help you from anywhere from spending a little money to a lot of money in terms of building the best technology that's out there. But even if we go sell that technology into any given company to show that you're gonna even do better business, it still isn't gonna be 100% secure because of the people and processes part of that. All right, and, and just to jump to what may be some of the processes to protect ourselves from hackers, uh, Rob, if you wanna field this uh, and, and you don't need necessarily to stick with these types, these particular bullet points, but as a guide, if you want to touch on them, please. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was mentioning that I have a hard time focusing specifically on the cyber or the digital security. I think it's a set of be best practices that is management systems. It's your physical security. It is your your digital security. Uh, I, I think. You need to focus on your shipping logs and your best practices with uh, keys or key codes when you're shipping encrypted drives. There's some really humble brick and mortar nuts and bolts that I think are more likely to be the bad phone calling and again on a random Thursday is going to be a misshipped something or another or not being able to research who signed for a package or uh, accidental upload of a like-named product. Um, I think there's a lot of very humble, uh, easy-to-make 
mistakes that are easy for our industry, you know, for us to be tripped up on. And I, and I, I moved it to best practices. Um, and, and notwithstanding that I have a sense that Tim could break through all of this if he wanted to, uh, if he so chose, but the, there, there are the tier three, there are the maybe the less able types who might not be able to penetrate uh, a company's um, data if they do these basic pieces. Is that, would you agree or? Yeah, and, and uh, okay, so, okay, give me more training, right? Who wants to do that, right? Drone in front of a computer with the CPT saying it's important. Okay, we got the point that cybersecurity is important. It is very, dis, um, it makes me sad, right? I mean, we've had this comment before we started that said, if you were hacked, that, that'd be the close-up shop. That's really sad for me because I feel that the more you talk about it and the more you kind of open the kimono on what your capabilities and, and, and or vulnerabilities are, when it comes to cybersecurity parts, the better off you are, right? And that's the relationships that you find. Those are the things that you go forward. When I talk about things that have set back cybersecurity, like we, we were going pretty good for a while and then what set it back was when the CEO of uh, Home Depot get fired, right? And they, hey, you were hacked, you let it happen through an HVAC system and we're firing you. That sent a resonation through the industries to say that if I don't get on it, I'm done. And now I'm not gonna share any information anymore. And it's just the opposite of that, I think, that is where the strength of it all comes through. And we talked a little bit about it in not just like the individual and what you can do and don't click on URLs that are attached to, you know, emails and things of that nature. That's hopefully become second nature. But when you have companies that are, and I'll use the colleague's term of cottage industries in this here, that can't take the capabilities and put the latest and greatest firewall in every other year and, and do all deep, um, they call micro-segmentation, where you're putting things on for a user throughout your data. You can't do that, right? But what you can do is let business be business, let the, the industry be the industry, but the, the business practices behind it share the information in the background with each other on that to say, hey, you know what? We saw this coming in. It looked a little bit unusual. Have you guys seen this left or right? And, and this is these types of communities, centers, that have the focus of a commonality, this being the movie industry, clearly the, 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 the fist is greater than the fingers, right? If you're gonna go for an attack. You could be all the individual companies that are out there and you still have to go deal with it. But if you try to poke somebody in the eye, you're probably gonna break your finger. But if you all come together as a group, that's very powerful. And I've seen this both in New York City um, with some other, the financial industry. I've seen it in Boston um, with just the people who, the industries that are around Boston have kind of formed a group. And you're starting to see this in Wisconsin and other places. Interesting. And Peter, from an insurance perspective, uh, before you provide coverage to a company, do, are they required to have some best practices uh, put in place? Yes, you know, and I, I'll finish by coming back to this notion of, uh, just very basic checks and balances within a company. Uh, yeah, you know, a good insurance policy is going to have an application that's going to ask your IT department to communicate what they're doing. And a really good insurer, uh, and there are a few really good ones, will give you an opinion about what you need to do to strengthen yourself. Some of them won't insure you. If you haven't taken those steps, it'll make the pricing less if you do. Um, and by the way, the pricing is really low on cyber insurance. It's a ridiculously soft market. And I'm always shocked when I talk to really sophisticated 
companies that no 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 we don't, we haven't looked at it it's got to be terrible to do it and they haven't even looked you know the the exercise of just doing an application can really awaken the departments of your company that don't speak to one another accounting to legal how many times do they speak and yet they're handling such sensitive data and they're not probably doing it in the same way but how many people in this room know what a tabletop exercise is? Wow. See, it's it's just a dress rehearsal uh, for a hack, and and I, you know, here, okay, I've got ten bucks. Who can name who said this in 2015? There are two types of companies in the United States: the kind that have been hacked. And the kind that don't know they've been hacked. No, James Comey. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I would say there's a third. There's a corollary to that. There's there's uh, the companies that they know they've been hacked, but they want to pretend they weren't. Um, and there's a lot of those. Uh, the tabletop exercise is a rehearsal, and a company basically attacks, and you go through the process of your response. So, I mean, these guys are experts at preventing it. You need to also have some experts that help when it happens. We all go through fire drills in our buildings. We know where the fire alarm is. We've got two people in our company that know CPR. Then we got one person that's designated that can handle the defibrillator, but we don't do this? I mean, I find it just crazy. Uh, so you'll get that email or that text message on Friday night, soup's on. We've got your data. Tomorrow morning, 50 grand in Bitcoin this way, and it goes up $50,000 every three hours. Call anybody, you're done. Now, who do you call? What do you do next? And if you don't have a clue, you're really, really behind the curve here. And you should have rehearsed who communicates, who calls the FBI, how do you deal with um, a forensic auditor. You should have four numbers that are dialed immediately upon knowing a breach. Only one person is designated to speak to the outside world as the voice of the company. Maybe there's a PR firm that's called in right away to help you message to your client, not to spin it, to say it truthfully and clearly and consistently. And if you don't have that team of four numbers, it's not that expensive. It's, it's, it's a few grand of an insurance policy and you get all that. H how are you a modern company, this would be my question. So if you, anything you take from here tonight, think about doing a tabletop exercise for your company. It's interesting because we're more apt to get flood insurance, right? But at the same time, your business is what your livelihood are dependent upon. Uh, you may not be protecting and, and insuring in a proper fashion. Lloyd's of London has now classified cyber risk as the greatest potential catastrophe on the planet. There isn't enough money to insure for a real meltdown of a world war in cyberspace. That's how big the risk is. We have clients that are, they're uh, chain of dry cleaners, and they're hacked because there's so much great data there. There's bank accounts, there's credit cards, there's email accounts, there's tons of information. And, and these are folks that don't want to spend a few grand to ensure and rehearse what they do. And so they lost their chain. I'm going to just ask, uh, go to, well, for all of you who have ever watched the show 24, we all know about disgruntled employees. So um, it's a risk, I suppose, 
maybe Rob, you can speak to it. Not saying that you've had any. I'm sure everybody's happy. But if you've heard or any thoughts on it. Right. Uh, you know, I think one of the big HBO losses was uh, due to disgruntled employees. Uh, but I don't, I don't exactly know. You know, we do a lot to segment responsibilities. So most activities would require more than a single player to to have a, a major breach. But I, I think a lot of these systems are very defeatable, you know, so I, I'm, I'm humble to how easy it would be for any production out there or any facility uh, if, if there's an upset coworker, uh, he or she could cause a mess for you. Uh, and that, that's a difficult one to, to address. Are there safeguards? Tim, are there safeguards? Are there recommended practices? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, and it, 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 there's no way I don't, I don't think that you could ever stop that, right? I mean, the gentleman in the back brought up Snowden. I mean, if you look at the way that I, I was at working in that building when that happened, and you look at the, the amount of um, energy that is taken, who looks at the data, uh, that was the best in theory in the world, then it wasn't good enough, right? I mean, at the end of the day, right? I mean, so um, w there are technologies that are out there to say, hey, is it unusual? If, you're, if your normal activity is, is downloading this many megabits per second or, you know, and, you, and all of a sudden it spikes, right? There's technologies out there that can see that. Hey, if your normal pattern of life is this, you go look at the news, then you'd go to work and then you come back and you check your Gmail and do that. And all of a sudden you're starting to go have a, this, you know, bit bit turrent or um, something like that. You can there there's technologies out there that can go ahead and do that. But at the end of the day, I, I want I, I can't <laughs> I absolutely stand and applaud uh, my colleague here to say the TTX the tabletop exercise is key because if you if you've ever and I have right um, in a different circumstance, but if you've ever walked out of a building and had a reporter there and sticks the mic in your face and said, Hey, I heard you were hacked. How are you going to react to that? Right. Um, that's a very, very important piece to do. I've been involved with tabletop exercise all the way from the state level all the way to the company level, right? And at the state level, people would say in a closed room, much like this amongst friends and say, oh, I would get more people involved. I would build this relationship with FBI. I'd go, okay, then we put those people from that given state that shall go nameless is not New York, oh, by the way. Um, and they put them on stage, and now all the constituents from anybody could have come to this conference and said, you, public safety, were hacked, and all the medical people that you have ever seen through public health and safety are out there. And on stage, publicly, he said, I wouldn't talk to anybody about it. I'm like, whoa, that, that was a total 180 from, hey, behind the scenes, you said you're going to talk to everybody, but now, now it's in public, you're not going to talk to anybody? And that's why it comes to relationships. If you're hacked and you need help because you don't have the resources to do that, wouldn't it be better to have a relationship with a, and I'm not in the FBI, but just say I was, but wouldn't it be a relationship to have a relationship of Tim, who's in the FBI or maybe a cybersecurity professional or one of my two colleagues here, as opposed to, I need to call the FBI. Okay, who the hell am I calling, right? That's just a totally different conversation, which ties back to how I opened when we started this thing, it's relationships. And it's the people in this room working together, and it's the people who are, have the capability outside that. And all three of us can clearly help from standards that are set from people that you work with um, every single day to people that are available in the federal government and industry of who you can call to build a relationship before that. But let me ask you this, and I, I want to stick with you for a second, Tim, if I might. So let's say you're a company, and you just, for whatever reason, you really don't want that relationship with the FBI. It's not that you're doing anything illicit or improper, but you just don't want to. Is it, 
or do you have examples of companies that say, you know what, we're going to have a third-party vendor who does the auditing, randomly perhaps, in the middle of the night perhaps, um, to ensure that our data is being handled in a proper fashion? Could you have some kind of relationship like that? 100%. There's a whole industry out there that will, if you had the money and resources available, and they don't come cheap, right? FireEye is a good example of that. But they could come in and, and look at your thing and do the forensics piece to that. Um, if you have the resources available, I'd be more than glad to connect you with those. This is for the thought process of how do you leverage federal resources against the threats for some industry that doesn't necessarily um, have the resources to go fi hire a FireEye. I mean, Sony paid millions to FireEye, millions of dollars to, to recover from that, right? Um, so can you go anonymously, right? And, and, and so when you build a relationship, I know a ton of FBI agents and they say the first, the last thing I'm going to do is try to come in and broadcast your stuff throughout the world because I have a personal relationship with them, right? But you don't trust the FBI. Got it. There's other things within Department of Homeland Security. The MSISAC, Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center, has what's called a flyaway team. They live up in Albany, right? They could come in and say, hey, I've been that. I, and you say, I don't want anybody else to know. I need you to come in and do some forensics on my stuff to see what happened and move forward. So there's a ton of resources all the way from if you wanted to pay a lot of money to if you didn't want to pay any money, um, and then you'll get varying capabilities in between. But you could be a, a small post-production facility handling digital content that's worth tens of millions of dollars, right? And for most people, uh, and certainly for the studios that are the owners of that content, you want that secure. So even if you're a small company, if you start to get a reputation, this is just my guess, Peter, you're in the insurance side of this. Uh, you're going to be a harder company to ensure you should probably have some best practices in place. I helped run feature films at Lionsgate for a number of years. Before that, I ran television at Trimark Pictures. Um, and you know, I can tell you that you can have some of your most, and we all know it, some of your most valuable films and series in you know houses that are, you know, they're not multi-billion-dollar companies, uh, you know, a $100, 150000000 million film can be um, edited at, at any one of the facilities that people here own. And if that movie's taken, or 40 minutes of it wind up in a Kim.com locker, you know, Warner Brothers is going to be really pissed at you, and you know what happens. They don't, they're not going to go to the media. They're going to stiff you. If you. Maybe you had a yearly contract with them where you do three or four films, and they're going to say you're going to either do the next three for free or, you know, they're, they're going to beat you with a bag of oranges in a, in a back room. They're not going to make a big deal of it, but you're going to suffer a serious loss. You know, the real issue, and I think, you know, is how do you deal with it when it happens? Because it's going to happen. You're going to have a fire someday, right? It's why you do fire drills. It's why you have fire extinguishers. It's why you have sprinklers. So I have a fire department. Um, it's going to happen. And there are, you know, I mean, look, there, there are ways to respond. And, you know, one of the things you got to do is have an attorney that knows about data breach, not just a regular attorney, an attorney that will tell you, okay, these are your federal responsibilities. You deal in this state and that state. These are now your state responsibilities. And if you're clueless about that, it's really going to come back to haunt you. That's an easy call to make. A forensic auditor that can tell you what the hell happened to your systems, what you need to do right now, 
is an is a easy one to get. These guys know who they are. There are 30 of them here in New York, varying degrees. Are there simple practices, though, such as separating out your video from your audio content? I mean, are there things that you sh that are that's, basic? That's for you. And Rob, I don't, is that something you guys think about? Sure, there's, there's things that you wished always took place, you know, not having audio married with picture, having dirty picture with burn-ins. Um, what do you do with the mix? Yeah, exactly. The mix has become a place where clients are doing final review of color. So the Larson instance was curious because that is near pristine picture with near pristine audio. So it was a perfect location to go. We, we would uh, obviously prefer that uh, there was a little more slack in schedule. There was more opportunity to be careful that we could introduce some friction and some uh, checkpoints in all those processes, but uh, our productions are under pretty rough timelines. The budgets are constrained. Our industry uh, every day seems a little harder to, to make ends meet. So uh, it, it, it's a challenge. But to isn't that the problem? It, it is definitely. I mean, isn't the problem in any risk environment that you're rushing through because you're on a timeline and as a result of doing that repeatedly because you're consistently meeting a deadline? Errors, mistakes, Absolutely. and hacking occurs. Sure, and if it's not a hack, it, a digital loss, I think m the bigger vulnerabilities are when are the outliers, the, the one-offs, the less typical workflows. The, you're, somebody didn't make their lunch drop, so you're trying to get twice the dailies done with the final drop. You don't have the time to virus scan the media and you take down an entire facility. Where does policy come in play? Policy is, is really the only thing that you can have, uh, I think. You know, they're the facilities, uh, the post houses, or Who enforces it? I'm sorry? Who enforces the policies? It has to be, without uh, living by the rules, none of us would have jobs. Is there like an inspector general that should be in, inside of the company? I don't mean to make a police state out of your companies. You're here to do creative work, but you are handling very expensive content now. Right. Sure. I, you know, I, I think it, it has to, everybody has to live by it. If there's folks in production out here, we know that creating MD5 checksums slow down the process of offloading your media on set and getting it to the post house. It's great to skip that step. You can go home two hours earlier, but at that point, the chance of data loss exists. You, you've lost your chain of custody. Uh, you skip a virus scan in a facility. Uh, not only do you have the potential of hurting that one production, but you can destroy every production in a, in a, in a post house. There, there's things that humans can screw up that, def that make us very vulnerable to data loss. And I want to see if Tim has some thoughts on it, maybe not with this particular industry, but with other industries, and then ask Tim to also talk about detection and prevention. I, I think if you, it comes down to economics and time, right? I mean, and it could be money, it could be time. They're both valuable, right? And, and, and it is very typical to hear that, you know, we're under cost um, overruns where we, we don't have enough time to be able to go do everything. When you only have $1,000, let's just say, and you have to go through this, the key to this whole conversation is to where do you focus that effort of that $1,000 to be able to put towards 
what I'll call key terrain. Now that's a military term, but I think everybody could understand what key terrain is. That's the biggest thing that's the most important to your industry at that given time. And how do you focus the energy and time around that? You could let other things fail, like if email gets compromised and, and other things. Everybody wants to protect their email, but in the big picture, that's probably not key terrain for your industry, right? I guess unless you're Sony, right? But that's another story. Um, <laughs> but um, that that's the key there, right? So so the, the second part was what can you do from um, threats and protection? There are technologies out there that say, um, and, and the industry as uh, all of the um, original equipment manufacturers, the OEMs that are out there, are getting better at sharing um, information. And, and it used to be the way cybersecurity was thought of was like a castle with a moat around it, right? Everybody had Norton antivirus or McAfee or some endpoint security onto that. But if you got past the endpoint, now you're inside the castle and you could go anywhere through the data center, right? I mean, this is a little bit of, of the architecture that you have there. And obviously you don't do that now. Um, I'm not inferring that at all in any stretch of the imagination. But the next part is a trust nothing network. And when you start to see these flags, these companies, these, that the technology that's out there are sharing information among in industries, right? So if, if an industry is in the universities or if an industry is in the power grid or if the industry is in the medical community, but that same uh, OEM is in there, call it Palo Alto, call it Cisco, it doesn't really matter. They see it, an incident, they're going to fire it up to a cloud. And now that information shared across the entire ecosystem so that you're not the only one out there, but that ecosystem shares that threat and vulnerability. So if you go into your network of a trust nothing network, which is where technology is driving these networks too, which is a little bit what you were talking about there, and, and trust nothing network to ensure it for sure, then that's where the OEMs, it doesn't matter if you were verified at the endpoint, we could build the technology behind you so that when you get into the data center, if you start to see the same indications as someone else who flagged it as bad, you're gonna be stopped in your data center that goes through there. So. Can I ask you just as a, I'm interested, um, healthcare, environmental companies, et cetera, all of these different types of industries are now under attack. And some of them are probably moving faster than others to harden their operation. Folks here, by and large, are either working in the industry, own the, uh, business people in the industry. Um, we may be a little bit behind somewhat. Are there certain industries that you've seen that perhaps should be models for how to think through the whole cyber terrorism component? Yeah, I think it's a great question for my colleague here too. Um, but um, hands down, the financial industry right down the road is the best of all the industries that I've seen um, throughout there. Why? They put they got a lot of money, right? They put a lot of money and resources to it. They they hire ex-FBI agents, right, to go out and look for the bad guys. They troll the dark web. I mean, there there's a lot of activity that you can do. Guess what? Build a relationship with one of their, um, you know, consortiums down there, and now you're tapping into that resource, right? I mean, I just offer that as an example. Um, other industries that are really moving faster because of HIPAA requirements is the medical industry, and not just for your medical records, but if, like, I have artificial hips, right? If if that got to an insurance company before they knew how to insure me, they could jack my rates. Or my daughter's in genomics, right? And she said that there's five markers that can say whether you has Alzheimer's or not. So you do the 23andMe, all of a sudden someone hacks 23andMe and then they go back in the medical industry and oh, wow. now I'm not insured anymore because of how I'm gonna be when I'm older, right? So the, that's another industry that's growing very rapidly in its capability there. So. Peter? I'll give you one more, casinos. <laughs> They're really good at it and they, they hire the same people. Um, they are very good at 
staying on the dark web a lot to see who might be targeting them. They do a lot of um, basically spooking, which is uh, they are looking for collaborators to hack themselves. Uh, so they're it's pretty darn good. Great point. I wouldn't yeah, suggest you guys do that. No, no, no but, <laughs> no, no, but, but, no, no, but no. you're touching us on, I think, a really important point here. Is there a mindset? Because it strikes me that, and maybe I'm just wrong. Maybe you guys have been thinking about this a lot, and you are hardening your operation. But is there a mindset that um, some 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 trigger, some event that caused the casino industry? Obviously, they're dealing with cash all day long, so they're thinking of security. And whether it was cyber security or you know going back 50 years ago, it was you know, strong arms protecting the, the vault. Uh, that's always been a component. But with healthcare with uh, other types of industries, maybe not so much. Have you seen that on the insurance side, a particular type of mindset that is focused on on security and maybe not seen that so much in the film and television community? It's come late to the, um, the entertainment sector and media. It's definitely come late. Um, and, and I think the entertainment sector is still resistant to it. Um, we uh, have some of the biggest music companies in the world as our clients and it's been a slow evolution um, and you know there's content that there are kids all over the world that are highly motivated to steal it you know every day um, it's been a glacial process and you know i think it's part of um, just the industry culture um, we don't necessarily share competitors in in the uh, creative industry but I, I do think that the subset of post houses can be different. I think there's a much more collegial atmosphere among the folks in your community as evidenced by your being here together. I mean, you wouldn't see a bunch of UTA agents with CA agents here. This wouldn't happen. But UTA did get hacked. you know, And uh, they thought that all their emails were out there, which would have been hilarious. Um, but it, <laughs> they weren't. Um, you know, but they, they don't talk to each other. Um, and I think there's a lot of islands. There's island culture in terms of how risk is managed in yeah. the entertainment industry. Yeah, so I'd encourage you guys to break that. And I'll just give a plug colleague did. off of what you just said uh, to Post New York Alliance. Because I, I think it's fair to say that prior to the formation, I think it was in 2008 when we formed it, um, that most of the facilities were competitors and didn't speak very much to each other, maybe some relationships. But it, that's a fair statement, Chris, pretty much. And because of the film and television tax incentive and everybody pulling in the same direction, now we have communication within that uh, community. It was an organizing principle, if you'll have it. And now um, it strikes me that maybe security is another organizing principle that, can, that you know, the, the Post-New York Alliance should be thinking through. Um, I want to start to get to some of your questions, if I might. Um, we have, I'm just going to see if there's, uh, there's the next generation of security and um, uh, understanding the value of your content, but I think we kind of, we kind of discussed that. The fact of the matter is that a lot of your content is really quite valuable and is going to be very desirable by a hacker. Um, but what I'd like to do is kind of throw it to you guys, and if anybody has a question, I will come up to you and hand you the mic, and you can ask the panelists 
You have a question. Would that be okay? Somebody must have a question. All right. All right. Um, this is mostly, I think, for Peter. Um, so, my, kind of a question, kind of a comment. I work in Los Angeles with a number of uh, content security companies. One of them is MediaSeal, which I think um, Andrea mentioned. So, my question is, I'll go and talk to the producer about a low-cost encryption software. And he'll say, well, it sounds great. Talk to the post supervisor. Talk to the post supervisor. No, okay, talk to the producer. I'll talk to the producer. He'll say, well, it's up to the studio. You mentioned Netflix um, or MGM, where a lot of the films are negative pickups. So they'll say, okay, well, here's an amount of money. Here's your $8, $10 million. <clears throat> go make your movie and bring it back to us. Now, aside from working with the uh, content security, I also produce movies. I made one for MGM that's coming out in June. And I'll tell you, it was a negative pickup. They said, here's your money. Go make the movie. No line item for security. No, you have to use this, uh, these protocols. I mean, there's really nothing. We spent more money on craft services than we did on content protection. And on one hand, it's very frustrating because our software like MediaSeal or this Creative Future, which I also work with, which is sort of an, uh, an industry watchdog. But everybody points fingers to the other person. Um, And I do agree with you guys that the post places are talking to each other um, about content security because I, I get that back. But they don't, the studios I don't think are doing a lot. They're certainly not doing as much as they can. Uh, but have you found that different? I've I mean, you said only you did, so maybe Only with respect to post houses. Uh, post houses have been really good, see, by the way. When you see the requirements for a post house uh, from the studio. It will have insurance requirements and it will have uh, spec requirements with negative pickups, which is what you're talking about. It's a different world. You're out in the wild making a film. Um, yeah, they're hands off. It's like bring it back to us and just bring it back. And it's exactly. too bad. Um, you know, I think it's, you're right, it's a pass the buck uh, situation. So uh, it's either the producer that cares about it. In my opinion, it should be the insurance company that cares about it. I've been lobbying the better insurers of motion pictures, like Chubb and Allianz, which is soon to be Real Media, and Hiscox, to do two things. One, on the insurance package, have as part of the negative and faulty a cyber endorsement so that if you are hacked, if your film is hacked, let's just say the board you know, on set is hacked, and you know somebody's got that information or they took it down or they destroyed it you have to reshoot it you have to take your systems down you're going to have out-of-pocket expenses you're going to need to call this guy or mandiant or whoever it is to help you figure out what the heck to do you probably should call a couple of other people it's going to cost money that should be an item it's an event it should be insurable um, it doesn't prevent it from how, happening. How do you, how do you monetize that? In other words, I've always made a case where there should be a line item on every film there for should be content security. Right. And I would imagine very few films have content security insurance. So you do have negative and faulty insurance, right? There's well, you have completion bond insurance, which you have no, no, to no, have. No, no, I'm not talking about a surety guarantee on the delivery of the film. I'm talking about the negative and faulty insurance. So if... It's an old term of art, right? Uh, but if the negative were 
if, if it was just scratched, if, the, if the, the image is corrupted after it's shot, you are indemnified to go back and reshoot it. That's what the insurance is for. It's a unique piece of insurance. It doesn't exist in, uh, for Kmart and hospitals. <laughs> yeah, hospitals, maybe uh, not so much. And, and, and if the, for instance, if, if uh, the hard drive was off, somehow you, you couldn't detect it, and it didn't really record, that's the, the faulty side. So you are indemnified. You do have a limit for that. What I'm saying is a cyber event should be tied into that, should be a circumstance that they insure for in that. I think there's another way to address it from an E&O uh, policy, but I don't want to take you ask, the weeds. last question. I'll turn the mic over to somebody else. But with like um, Expendables 3, let's say, how would you monetize that? Because there's a picture that probably wouldn't have done a lot of business. Somebody worked on it, sorry. But except for all the press that came out, it probably did more business than it would have. So there's a, like, how do you, I mean, because of the hack? Company, how you monetize, yeah, well, because of publicity about the hack. Well, see, now you're talking about insurance for the revenue of the film, and I'm not interested in okay. that. That's a fool's errand, I think. Okay, you know, so well, you don't you guys start talking that. to a studio about what they think they could have made and what. Well, that's exactly. No, I, I, I like to live in the black and white world. Here's what came out of pocket from your event. Okay, got it. Got or it. here's the value of a lawsuit to you. I mean, potentially, um, your investors sue the producer, you know? Um, that can happen. So there should be a third party element to it. So, so if I could just add a couple things to that, obviously not in the movie industry. I, I wanna thank you, right? Thank you for being here, thank you for listening, and thank you for at least bringing up this subject. I also wanna turn it a little bit into a positive side, right? I, I will say that this industry, from the way you described it, is very typical in most industries that are out there today. Because we haven't had our cyber 9-11, right? That whole, except for, you know, you could you can look at the Ukrainian cyber hack as it related to the electrical grid. You could look at some other things that were pretty traumatic, but we haven't had that incident yet. So everybody's struggling, and, and colleague here basically said, why do I have to go do this, right? Because we haven't had it yet, but it's adding more time. Was Atlanta pressure. a rehearsal? You would know more than I. What, what happened in Atlanta? Atlanta, not familiar with Atlanta. They, they had a system-wide shutdown, and it, it sounded like it might have been an outside attack. I could talk to you, the Ukrainian incident. Um, I, I guess I can't talk too much about the Atlanta incident. But, you know, that, that basically comes out to how well do you think that people understand your network, really, which was the, the magic of what happened at Ukraine, and they knew that network pretty well. Um, it would have been far different. They, the Ukrainians actually had a, a simulated site, let's just say. So, so this is, deception is part of the um, art of cybersecurity, right? So you could have one set of systems over here and one set of systems over here. One is real, one is not, right? So let the hackers go tack the one that isn't real, call it a honeypot, call it deception. And that's kind of what happened. They hacked initially the simulated system. They saw it, they, and it stopped the bleeding from what happened over there. Um, three separate power uh, stations went down, which took power out to most of the country, but they brought it back up within 24 hours again, right? But, so. but again, to, to tie back to the industry, don't feel that you're way behind. I, I think it's very spot middle because there's people in this room that are talking about it. In 2006, I would have been sitting up here alone, right? Because no one wanted to hear about cybersecurity. The fact that it's now um, people talking about it and having other experts on uh, sit to my left and right that are way smarter in this and, and execution than I am is, is very helpful to be able to move everything forward. 
and I, if I could jump in, I, I don't necessarily think you need to throw a ton of money at it. You can fix it with patience. You can fix it with discipline. You can fix it with systems. Uh, if, if you're in over your head, simplify your network. If you don't feel like you can secure a client portal, do away with it. Get rid of the FTP servers. Only use uh, secure transfer methodologies. Uh, push back on the timelines. Demand best practice with MD5 checksums. Demand that your clients, even though it's easier to use Dropbox, force Aspera. Uh, it, it have freeware Honeybots. It, it's, there, there's lots that we can do to simplify and secure. It doesn't require tons and tons of money. It requires some understanding and maybe communication is your point, but discussion with the productions, discuss exposure, discuss best practice in your pre-pro. These, maybe I'm deluding myself and our network has been hacked or is completely vulnerable, but I think by simplifying, by being disciplined, by discussing management practices and why these things are important, I think we can live another day. So I don't, I, I don't think we should be fatalistic. I don't think we should give up smart practices. I think we should remind each other uh, why it's important to have two instances of your data in two geographic locations and don't cut that corner just because our budgets are tight. You know, But notwithstanding that, and to I think this gentleman's question, they want their content delivered, right? So if you're in the museum industry and you know that the Isabella Gardner Museum had millions of dollars worth of paintings stolen, they have a history of it. They know to, that they got to provide security. Are we just, uh, in some ways, working in silos? There's not enough information sharing. And as a result, there are probably more hacks than, and more content that has been stolen that we even are aware of. And maybe in some way, that could be impeding putting a, a line item in your budgets for security. Please. So, so I, I think if you talk to Sony, Sony's spending a lot of money on security now, right? I mean, because of their post on the other side of that event. Um, I, I think, I'm going to use the analogy, I'm leaving for Africa in three weeks. My daughter was in the Peace Corps over there. My daughters are both looking at me going, Dad, I'm glad you're going on the photo safari with me because I could run faster than both of you if a lion starts to chase us, right? I am the, 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 the person that would be eaten first, right? As the kids move forward, right? So, so when you talk about industry standards hackers are lazy i mean i met a bunch of them both on good and bad side they want the easiest way in if you're doing practices and you knock and knocking on the door trying to get into different things and you set a security practice that is better than maybe other competitors that are out there they become the low hanging fruit right mm -hmm. and they become the easier targets to go after right and so they're not going to go after the super hardened target initially unless there's a political motivation and we very and we maybe talk too much about specific threats to a specific target but there's they're just the low-hanging fruit hey if i could get onto my computer at home and i don't have best security practices i could steal my credit card go ahead i'm going to steal if, if i got five or six things on there uh, too hard i'm going to try somebody else right at the end of the day so That's that that would be the comment is just raise your bar somehow some way to a point you don't have to spend a ton of money obviously um but it's a practice and it's a mindset and as the generation changes um and as you start to get my 23 year old to become 50 um i think that will slowly morph over time or we have our cyber 911 either one i have some more questions but uh, is there any more questions from the audience i 
let's take your questions first. I'll go back up and, and then do it over here if that's okay. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I had a comment and a question. First about the Larson Studios thing. When that happened, my take on it um, in terms of how they managed to, you know, uh, reclaim some of their respectability was um, they were very public about the Mia culpa. I mean, it was like they they were like they basically. I saw I think I read three or four interviews where they were just our security was terrible. It was just awful. But we just hired these three guys and they're awesome and we just totally revamped everything and they were very very public about their. Um, fixing it process, I think that's what helped. I think that that's, that did a lot for them. In PR, they call on the four R's, right? To express regret, to reform, to recover. Oh, leaving out an R. But they, they expressed regret and they showed reform very openly. And they were sincere about it and consistent with what they said. I think you're right, that, that contributed a lot. Yeah. But it, it is remarkable that they, they live to fight another day. Yeah, because I, I would have said the same thing as Rob. As soon as that happened, I'm like, they're done. But they, they managed not to be. I mean, and I think that I think the way they handled it afterwards was really, really well done. Oh. Restitution, that's the other R. Oh. They didn't do that, though. No. <laughs> um, and then my question is, uh, and they must figure it out, but I don't know this. Like, what happened, if we, get, if we, if we do get hacked, you say, you know, call the FBI. Let's say you're not a place that has uh, somebody on retainer, a, a company that you know, does your audits or whatever. Like, what is that phone number and who should you ask for? You know, is there a 911 for cybercrime at the FBI? I mean, like, wh who do you actually call? Yeah, there's, that's a great question. And I could get you those numbers. Yeah, there actually is like a 911 for the FBI. It's Sweet. the National Cyber Incident Joint Task Force, NCIJTF. They live in Chantilly. Each of the local um, jurisdictions that to include um, people here in New York um, work through the Office of Emergency Management, which is uh, over in Brooklyn, right? So um, that would be a place you can go. And, and again, um, the, the MSI, so I could give you a whole list and I'll, I'll fire it through Andrea to give you the whole list of the 1-800-CALL-ME. Um, they're they're not actually gonna walk you through your response though necessarily and their advice as to how to behave is going to be very hands-off uh, so that is a call you make but you don't have to have a, a law firm and a forensic audit team on retainer let's be clear you if you insure with a company that gives you those phone numbers that insurance policy is your rolodex what is the escalate sorry to interrupt what is your es your ideal escalation as re relates to the content owner is the First call the FBI and the second call the studio is the first call the studio because it's their IP and the second call the, the government. What's your opinion there? Uh, I'm going to give the military answer. It depends, right? I would call that, and I'm going to relate to this, my, Peter's comment, is have a tabletop exercise and, and work that out, right? I mean, and then it's going to be able to do that. I, I honestly don't think, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I would not call the FBI as the first pickup if I had an issue, unless I had the relationship with the FBI. Let's talk through this in an incident, a very real incident. I have a friend who works in the healthcare industry. She runs HR payroll. She logged in from home, logged into the payroll, was hacked. Someone got on and, and watched all the passwords go there on a keylogger. They took all of those, her payroll, to include her own payroll, and put it into credit cards that were then gone. So when they all went Monday to look in for their paychecks, they were gone. 
Right. I agree about that. The only exception is if physical violence is threatened. Yeah, yeah clearly, 100%. Great, great point. Great point. Sir? Hi. A um, couple comments. Um, first of all, the acoustics in here are amazing. So um, I'm a uh, technology consultant, and I deal with security with my clients on a daily basis. And they never, ever want to spend money on this at all like hi we have an you know an old apple airport base station as our firewall and we have an old xserve oh and the firewall has got a few ports forwarding to the uh you know the mac mini that's running the you know filemaker pro database this is an unfortunate normalcy that i see in especially in new york um and it's scary but the clients they just they do not want to spend any money on this and how do you justify the business uh, expense. That's the real question. Everyone's like, oh yeah, we're worried about it, but nobody wants to spend any money doing this. Well, you're... <laughs> I do not yeah. have one. It's but depressing. Yeah, so. uh, we try to show clients the cost of a claim. We try to show them data on frequency and severity. And if that doesn't wake them up, I threaten to light myself on fire. How's that work? I mean, it never works, and so I'm not that successful a salesman. But when it comes to, as we're getting the next question, as it comes to technology, I know you, um, buying security is, is, is a misnomer, right? You, you buy an architecture that is secure as opposed to buying security. Like, there's not a Band-Aid fix, right? There's not, you know, the McAfee semantic solution has gone in the past. So working with an architecture, which, like we've talked about in the past, is really key you don't have to spend any more money right just reorganize help them reorganize how their networks are set up and i i think you in many regards you pay to play if you want to work with a studio client or uh, um, you know be it a studio feature or episodic television um, to get through the standard of care you have to have invested over quite a period of time, both the infrastructure as well as the management systems and the physical systems. Uh, you can still work in post, you can still make great films without going through an MPAA audit, but if you wanna work on Spider-Man, you, uh, you have to pay to play in, in many regards. So as part of your services in insurance, do you have hackers on payroll to go out and test your clients? <laughs> yeah, I can't answer that. Sorry. Related again to insurances. Um, so, if if there is a breach of security, does the insurance pay for the forensic team? Yeah, that's part of it. Absolutely, okay. that's a okay. first party, meaning right. you cost. You know, okay. and there's four or five components to what kind of cost you'll experience in the first 96 hours, first 30 days. And then we can show, you know, depending on how big your business is, what those costs are 90 to 120 days out, a half a year later, they tend to be PR costs, they tend to be other things, but there's a suite of expenses that are endemic to any bad breach. Let's just call it a breach, and it can be a physical breach. It can be someone walking out with, you know, a hard drive or a copy of it. Um, we've had, unfortunately, uh, an executive whose laptop was clearly hacked going through an airport, and they had the finished film or pretty much the director's
cut, not the producer's cut, and there it was, $3.99 on Kim.com, you know, the pirate locker from Australia. So sometimes breaches are hard to tell if they are actual breaches. So what if it is not actually a breach? Is it well, still you have covered? an event. You have an okay. event. And so it's, it's a claim, event. and you do call it in. And there is, of course, a deductible. And gotcha. you know, it depends on the contract that your broker negotiates gotcha. for you. And we're not the only ones that do it. But it depends what sensitivity you have to the risk. That a lot of people get hacked and don't know they've been hacked. Maybe Tim mentioned that. Oh gosh, you know we and, and or they, they well, it's interesting. They they either switch out their server and somebody looks through it and it goes, oh my god, for three days our intranet wasn't even under our own control three months ago. It was a dummy intranet, and somebody took all of our trade secrets and all of our you know, no wonder we lost that account or no wonder you know whatever it was, um, and in the entertainment industry. We think it happens to this to the agencies, um, wow. and we think that there's also, you know, there's a, a group that targets entertainment also, you know, that's driven by paparazzi, that's driven by the, you know, the Inquirer type uh, media, and and they are looking for a different thing. They're looking for dirt. They're looking for an embarrassing moment. Wow. Any other questions? Just a couple of things for you as, as, as on the international element, so to speak here. Um, if any of you do have uh, any sort of goings on with on an international basis, uh, there's a lovely little thing coming in from Europe called GDPR. Um, and that has come out of the fact that people were sick and tired of people harvesting uh, personal information, as you've had with your uh, lovely Facebook over here as well too. Um, and that means the law coming in in May uh, means that if you do have a hack and your information uh, is not encrypted, then and you have to tell the person who's been hacked within 72 hours, which is a physical impossibility anyway, then you can be fined 4% of your global turnover. So Microsoft has already started to wriggle uh, profusely uh, saying we are an American company. The other thing as well, too, is it's, uh, it's it, it goes back five years. So it's not now, it goes back five years. Um, so you, there's all manner of problems. Uh, in Europe, everyone is running around relatively like headless chickens. In America, um, it's America. So you just sort of sitting there. Thank you very much for bringing GDPR up. Uh, this is, Mr. Elwin, is it May 21st? What is the date? Uh, it goes 30th. 30th. Yeah. Right. So one of my colleagues is back there. And, and yeah, we have, you know, foreign sales companies that are our clients and they are facing this. It's, uh, of course, Europe's way ahead of us. It, but the Much equivalent as well, too, is because I remember Y2K, the first real sort of technical uh, love child for the insurance industry. Uh, the problem there is that everyone in Europe is starting to charge increasing fees against that. And the amount of people who can actually do the auditing is running out <laughs> because the people can't afford to get the guy in to actually audit. So that's something that's of, of great concern. For a couple of things just to pick up on because I research for all my sins as well too. 
last year or the year before, uh, you were saying um, that um, IBM um, brought out a lovely piece of data that said that 55% of people who were approached for ransomware in the United States paid it. So you would have thought that if someone comes up to you and said, you know, don't do it, you've got to be fairly sensible and go to the right people. 55% of people paid. Right. It's made things much more difficult. Um, and, you know, sometimes the FBI has said you might be better off paying. And that, I don't think, has helped the matter. That just fuels the industry um, before that, right? And, and it, it all goes down to relationships and trust again. I mean, if, if you're willing to work with others um, and understand that, there could be a part way forward or not, right? Um, there are people, like some in the room, that probably have skills that could mitigate that. Um, but if you don't want it to be public and you haven't necessarily thought of it before, then that's an issue. And I, I would say that's nobody in this room, right? Because obviously you're considering that it's people that aren't in this room. And the international front, um, from my prior life, we worked with the UK quite closely um, at US Cyber Command and a great partnership um, that's there. And I, and I echo the colleague. I think um, as much as the friction, I'll call it friction that is out there in terms of added cost and, and how running with their chickens with their head off is, um, is spinning, I think it's the appropriate level of emphasis if you will, to be able to do that. In the United States, we have to have to the debate. And that's the carrot or the stick, right? Do you reward with like insurance as a carrot or do you reward with the stick, which is policy, federal policy? And and that is a um, that could be a whole other hour and a half discussion <laughs> that we could have about that. Quite agree. At some point, let's have that conversation. Policy is important. Uh, are there any other questions before we wrap up? All right, not seeing any hands. Um, I think this has been a really uh, awesome panel, and the information has been that we've learned uh, from the panel has been really, you know, very well appreciated. Um, I want to say thank you. Um, I think we can all agree that uh, the industry has some work ahead of it. Uh, some folks are ahead of the curve, but a lot of folks may not be. Uh, but that the content is so valuable and so desirable by the public that there's a, a strong incentive to feed as much of it as possible, I suppose. Uh, with that in mind, we have our work at the Post-New York Alliance that we have to do to talk more about and to figure out how we can uh, work with the community to, to ensure greater security uh, for the facilities. And with that, I say thank you and good night. <laughs>